President Bashar al-Assad dismissed pretty much everyone who has been taking part in protests against his regime as terrorists or armed criminals, foreign conspirators or religious extremists. He said there were many people in Syria who had legitimate political concerns and aspirations, but he said they are the ones who have not been protesting on the streets of Syria, but he said he wants to help them, and he believes the way to do that is through something called national dialogue. It's pretty vague, but he describes an inclusive process that he says would be representative of the whole of Syria's social fabric, not just those, and perhaps not at all those, who have been opposing him publicly. It will not be a country of sectarian fighting as those from outside Syria wanted to see. We should be aware that the implementation of reform and development is not only an internal demand, it is necessary, it is vital to face up to the conspiracies and therefore we have no choice but to succeed on our internal policy so that we can succeed externally. Pressure is under the steadfast and the combating Syrian people, people don't want to see resistance and they want us to fail. Security, achieving security is the source of the achievement. The people is aware of achieving, achieving this. I am saying this stemming from the experience and reality. Those who have protected the country from previous setbacks is the people. The young people who have stood up to the conspiracies through their People's Committee and young groups and young initiative have raised the name of the country high and united the country. Welcome back to What Happened to Syria, a podcast about the country, the people, and their impact on the wider world since 2011. First, some housekeeping. In the last episode, I erroneously stated that Abdul Basit al-Sarut was born in 1999. That's incorrect. He was born in 1992. I don't know how I got that mixed up. I guess the fact that he was 19 years old in 2011 just led me to mix up numbers in my head when I said the year in which he was born. No, he was born in 92, not in 99. Sorry about that. Now, on to the main event. By the summer of 2011, differences between supporters and opponents of the Assad regime have become irreconcilable. Too many protesters have been tortured and murdered. Too many activists and others who called for reform from within the system have been arrested or assassinated by the regime. And too many towns have now been put under military occupation. More than a thousand people, possibly two thousand, have been killed since March. This includes children like Hamza Ali al-Khatib. The first confirmed battle to take place between regime security forces 
and armed opposition has already occurred in the northern city of Jusser al-Shagur. Considering how the regime tends to respond to peaceful protests, you probably won't be surprised to hear that they responded to this violent insurrection with a massive wave of collective punishment against other nearby towns in northern Syria. Meanwhile, the protests continue to grow larger and larger as Syrians who were previously undecided begin to take to the streets to either voice support or opposition to the regime. The middle ground, where those undecided hang out, is becoming smaller and smaller. The arrests, the massacres, the torture, the bombings, and other human rights abuses are pouring more fuel onto an already intense flame of public anger. Syrian citizens are increasingly divided into two camps, the pro- and anti-regime side. These would ordinarily be two separate political parties in a normal country, but Syria isn't normal. It's a totalitarian state with zero tolerance for dissent. But the largest protest to take place thus far, yeah, we've said that before in previous episodes, we're going to say it again in this and future episodes because they just keep getting bigger and bigger. The largest protest to take place thus far, again, will put enough pressure on the regime for its foundation to start cracking. Bashar al-Assad is starting to panic, while his advisors begin to privately clash in a government where office politics can get you killed. They will eventually settle on a strategy that will turn the Syrian revolution into one of the bloodiest of 2011's multitude of protest movements going on across the world. Governments everywhere will make window dressing concessions, if not outright crumble under the pressure, while Libya's civil war continues to rage. But more and more international observers will soon realize that Syrian protesters being killed in the streets has become a daily phenomenon. More and more people begin to to fear that the country is on the brink of either a civil war or a genocide conducted by the Assad regime. Nobody in Syria is going to feel safe by the end of this episode. The Syrian opposition never felt safe, especially after the soldiers, police, and Shabiha militias started shooting them in the streets months ago. But now, even the regime loyalists are starting to feel afraid. Up until now, they believed that they had a firm upper hand over the situation. This episode will show how they came to feel increasingly insecure, and as a result, how they came to rationalize, inflicting some of the worst horrors imaginable upon their fellow citizens. Today, we're going to look at how supporters and opponents of the regime became alienated from one another, to the point where they form almost separate nationalities. Assad's Syria versus Free Syria. This is What Happened to Syria, Episode 13, Alienation.
just so we're clear about something, there never was a distinct protest phase versus civil war phase or insurgency phase in Syria. These two different phenomena were occurring simultaneously, simultaneously to different extents over the last 10 years. All over the country in mid-2011, you have people peacefully protesting in cities, towns, and villages, and it's become a common occurrence for soldiers or police or militias to shoot them dead in the streets. But what set Jisr al-Shagur apart from all of that was that this is the first confirmed instance of a gunfight taking place between the security forces versus the opposition. This is the first time where we see those opposed to Bashar al-Assad shooting at the people who have been shooting at them for months. Now, who were these people? Some of them were just locals who were tired of being shot for protesting. Some of them were army defectors, people who saw what was going on, they felt that it was morally wrong, and they defected to the opposition side. And lastly, there were a small but influential number of extremists among their ranks, jihadists. A lot of these people were veterans, if you could call them that, of the Iraq War. They had gone across the border to Iraq to fight the U.S.-led coalition and the Iraqi government since 2003. And these guys in particular, they were very small in number, but they were very well organized. And they had international connections. They had, they had funding and weapons and reinforcements coming in from all over the world. That's why the jihadists would eventually become such a powerful faction in Syria. In 2011, they weren't so powerful, but they were laying the groundwork, especially by forming a relationship with other elements of the increasingly armed Syrian opposition. They would eventually betray this trust, but we'll get to that part of the story in due time. For more on the fighting that took place in Jisr al-Shagur, I want to turn now to a book called Syria, The Fall of the House of Assad, written by Dr. David Lesh. Quote, The city had a history with the Assads. In 1980, the government carried out a brutal crackdown that presaged the events of a couple years later in Hama, another conservative Sunni city. Violence broke out on June 6, 2011, with government forces entering the city. According to Syrian state reports, 120 security personnel were killed by, quote, armed gangs, unquote in the largest death toll to date in any single theater of combat in the uprising. Opposition websites contended that the 120 security personnel had actually been killed by their own when they threatened to, or actually did, defect to the opposition. This is but one example of the diametrically opposed narratives offered on the same incident by two sides, which were attempting to spin the story to their own advantage. Perhaps more importantly in the long term, the action taken along the Turkish border by Syrian forces, which were probably attempting to prevent any safe zones from developing, not only boosted the flow of Syrian refugees, boosted the flow of Syrian refugees into southern Turkey, but also hastened Turkish involvement in the crisis and increased pressure on Ankara's erstwhile friend Bashar al-Assad to really implement the reforms that had been announced. The Syrian government's failure to do so the increasing violence, and the associated flood of refugees to Red Crescent camps in Turkey, approximately 10,000 by mid-June of 2011, would eventually alienate one of Syria's most important regional friends. 
Jisr al-Shagur and other towns in the area had been virtually emptied, with most of the residents fleeing to or across the Turkish border. There were reports that Syrian artillery actually shelled some of the refugee camps inside Turkey. Unquote. That was from Dr. David Lesh's book, Syria, The Fall of the House of Assad. So there's a lot to unpack out of that quote. So really, there's three main points we got we to gotta hit on before we move on from analyzing that quote. So, yeah, as early as June of 2011, thousands of Syrians have now been, have now been made refugees and have been forced to flee to another country. Turkey is going to really bear the brunt of the Syrian refugee crisis. And sometimes this is going to have major political consequences both for that country as well as for... This will have major consequences both for Turkey as well as for the Syrian opposition. In later episodes, we're really going to dive deep in how the Turkish government went on to gain a really significant influence over what most people call the mainstream elements of the Syrian opposition. The influx of Syrian refugees into Turkey lead to an increased amount of anti-Syrian and anti-Arab xenophobia among Turks as well. This is something that we are seeing flaring up right now in Turkey as we speak. There was a time when Reshetype Erdogan was one of Bashar al-Assad's closest allies. But over the next 10 years, he is going to go on to become one of Assad's worst enemies. Although not the very worst. In fact, every once in a while, Erdogan's going to offer Assad and his allies some pretty sweet deals at the expense of the Syrian opposition fighters that Turkey claims to be supporting. Though that's going to be way further on in the future. I don't know if this podcast is even going to be still going on by the time we get to 2019. Hopefully it will. One can hope. And lastly, we've got that bit about the 120 security personnel. Were they killed by their own side or were they killed by armed opposition? Well, in the last episode, we read a quote from Rania Abuzaid's book that pretty made a pretty convincing case that it was the opposition who killed those guys. And then they made up the claim that they had been executed by their own side, too. Now, now I'm paraphrasing the jihadist named Muhammad, who Abuzaid quoted in her book, quote, we had to explain where the bodies came from, unquote. Again, I'm just paraphrasing. I don't have the quote in front of me right now. That's from No Turning Back by Rania Abuzaid. Yeah, they had to explain... Why did 120 security personnel suddenly turn up dead? Well, if you say armed insurgents killed them, that's actually really convenient for the regime because they've been saying that the, that the opposition just a terrorist movement this whole time. That's going to be a, that even though the regime technically lost that battle, or at least the first phase of it before they took the town back, that would be a major political victory for the Assad regime. So we can perhaps see why these people, who weren't all jihadists, although there were some, there there were a few Al Qaeda adjacent people in that crowd, in addition to the real military defectors and locals who just wanted to protect their homes and not be shot in the streets for protesting, you can perhaps see why they decided, yeah, it would be better for our side for people to think that the Assad regime killed these Assad regime security forces. It shows how ruthless they are. That's why they're so merciless with us. If they show us mercy, they will be executed. And it was also quite believable because, yeah, if you are a member of the Assad regime security forces, you could get executed for all kinds of different things. It wasn't that far outside the realm of possibility. 
Yusser El Shagor was eventually taken back by the regime. They killed a lot of people. They blew up a lot of buildings. It was horrible. And they displaced thousands of people, like Dr. David Lesh mentioned. And then they didn't stop there. Like I mentioned, there was a collective punishment campaign waged against these towns up in the north. A lot of towns and villages and other rural communities were attacked just for being within close proximity to some other place where security forces had some problems. Just a dramatic overreaction, honestly. One of the places that was put under siege by the regime at this point was a place called Marat al-Naman. Now, this place is one of those special kind of out-of-the-way towns where over the course of almost a decade, the, the locals managed to resist not only the regime, but also jihadists. Marat al-Numan will be the location of a dramatic local uprising uh, against the group now known as Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, or HTS. Back then, they were still going by either Jabhat al-Nusra or Jabhat Fatah al-Sham, but everybody still called them al-Nusra back then. Either way, they were al-Qaeda-linked jihadists who were trying to impose their will over a corner of Syria. And the locals of Marat al-Numan didn't put up with it. They literally fought them and expelled them from the city. And these were people who had previously fought the regime. These are primarily free Syrian army fighters. I know we haven't quite introduced them yet. We're getting to that soon. 2015 or 16, these free Syrian army fighters, most of whom were locals from Marat al-Numan, they just got together and kicked out these extremists who had been trying to impose basically a different variation of tyranny upon the local population. I know we're really getting ahead of ourselves here, but this is going to be one of the major tragedies of what takes place in Syria over the following years. You will have multiple places that managed to throw off the yoke of secular Assadist tyranny, but a lot of them will end up suddenly will end up under the thumb of a different form of tyrannical rule in the, in the form of either ISIS or al-Nusra or other theocratic extremist groups. What sets Marat al-Numan and a few other places apart, though, is that the locals, the people who rose up protesting for, in their own words, freedom, they fought back and made some significant gains. The, ultimately, though, the story of Marat al-Numan will have a very tragic ending in 2019. Elsewhere in Syria, communities around the eastern city of Derazor have been put under siege in a manner reminiscent to that which Dara has been subjected to. Now, regarding this particular siege of Derazor, there's a lot less information publicly available in English about this one. If, if somebody listening to this happens to know a lot about what was going on in Derazor in May, May to June 2011, uh, please feel free to reach out to us because I don't, I can't read Arabic yet, and I haven't found any English language sources really about this particular thing. So I don't really feel confident commenting too much on this particular siege of Derazor, but I also didn't want to just completely overlook it. To illustrate what the Assad regime was doing in places like Jisr al-Shagur, I want to turn now to a quote from Civil War in Syria by Adam Baxo. Giles Doran Soro, and Arthur Cusney. Quote, The Syrian army, crippled by desertions, lacked reliable troops, especially infantry, that would allow retaking the cities. Shelling, therefore, at first became the regime's preferred method of attack until February 2012, when aerial bombing became more generalized. 
It punished the people collectively and kept troops out of harm's way on the battlefield, decreasing desertions. At the same time, the regime lent credence to rumors that the presence of terrorist groups was the reason for the bombing runs. By the end of spring 2011, the government was forced to withdraw from certain marginal neighborhoods and redeployed instead to strategic locations. Halloween neighborhoods, prisons, the infrastructure, the roads, and border posts. Paradoxically, the multiplying military operations actually strengthened the rebel movement. While the military tried to suppress the protests in Homs, mobilizations increased in the rest of the country, and by summer of 2011, any containment scenario on the 1982 Hama model was clearly not going to work. In addition, the protesters hunted by security services often went underground or took refuge in evacuated areas, depriving the security forces of the ability to identify them. Once the demonstrators went into hiding, they depended that much more on the activist networks to protect, house, and feed them. Most protesters cut off all contact with their relations, family, and friends at least temporarily, and their social life shrank to that of fellow activists. The concentration of protesters in various areas of the country had the effect of breaking down barriers between groups of activists, unquote. That was from Civil War in Syria by Adam Boxo, Giles Doran Sorrow, and Arthur Cusney, or Boxo et al. So with all that, you can probably see why the Syrian refugee crisis started as early as 2011. And all these people, it should be noted, people who fled, they all thought they would return home soon. Everybody thought, everybody in 2011 thought this would just be a few months, maybe a year, maybe a few years at most. Nobody thought it would lead to what it led to or that it would last as long as it has. As early as 2011, we see thousands of refugees fleeing Idlib for Turkey. And as the quote mentioned, there are also some occasions where the Assad regime did some pretty horrible things to those refugees, like shell their camps. Even while we see the, be the beginnings of an armed conflict, the protesting that characterized the Syrian revolution continues to escalate, even in places where people were reluctant to protest previously, like Damascus, or Aleppo, or even Latakia. So like, th those are probably like the big three places where regime loyalists assumed there wouldn't be any protesting or uprising. Damascus, the capital city, Aleppo, essentially the New York City of Syria, the economic hub where so many of the regime-connected business elites reside. And then finally you have Latakia, essentially the unofficial capital of the Alawi heartland where Assad's own family comes from. All three of these places are starting to see major protests for the first time, it being the first time because they've been and will continue to be exceptionally dangerous places for protesters. The months of protesting and experiencing violence at the hands of the regime is having a real impact on the protesters, a really negative one. And it really speaks to the sacrifices that these people were willing to make in order to, in order to help their country become a better place. I want to turn now to a quote from Samar Yazbek's memoir, A Woman in the Crossfire, Diaries of the Syrian Revolution. Quote, 
Now it is becoming more difficult for me to move around, not only because my daughter would shut the door on Fridays and burst out crying if I ever tried to go out, but because the security forces know what I look like as well. Maybe the last women's demonstration I went to convinced me that going to the street from here on was like walking myself to jail. Truthfully, I want to stay out of prison as long as possible, at least until my daughter finishes her exams, and as long as I can be useful to the young people's movement. I have been cut off from my family. I have been torn by them and from them. I know how much pressure is on them, but I won't pay the price for the tyranny and brutality of this regime. I will not surrender to their sectarian blackmail. And so, just like every other moment in my life, when I found myself at a crossroads, I've been towards this fate toward my freedom. This is a moment like the one where I ran away at the age of 16, like the one in which I divorced my husband and took my two-year-old daughter to live in Damascus. It is like many moments I have experienced before. It has nothing to do with any political position or bias toward one party or another. It is, in all simplicity, a tilting toward my own freedom, who I want to be, how I'm going to think and write." Unquote. That was Samar Yazbek writing in her memoir, A Woman in the Crossfire. And as we noted in the last couple of episodes, she did end up in the custody of the regime and had some pretty horrific experiences. That part where she mentioned sectarian blackmail, that's significant because she was an Alawi who supported the revolution. Because the regime was made up primarily of Alawis, and because... These people had all been exposed to propaganda all their life about how the only thing standing between them versus a genocide of their people conducted by the Sunni majority, they believed that the regime was necessary to prevent that. But not all Alawis bought into that. There were people like Samar Yazbek or Lubna Marie, for example, who realized that, hey, this government is treating everybody horribly, including Alawis. So we should all come together, regardless of which religions we were born into, to oppose the regime. As we've said multiple times in previous episodes, this was the Assad regime's worst nightmare. So I really love how Samar Yazbek describes it as sectarian blackmail. The way that the regime would try to make people feel like they were obligated to support it, or at least that their survival was dependent upon it. So the fact that Alawis and other and other non-Sunni Muslims are joining the protests and the fact that these protests are starting to take place in Damascus, Aleppo, and even Latakia of all places, it's starting to really set Bashar al-Assad and his cronies on edge. This is a real wake-up call for them, starting to realize that they had nowhere near as much control over this situation as they had previously thought. In their minds, they're thinking that Damascus, Aleppo, and Latakia should not look like Dara or Homs or Hama. And they never did entirely, but they're starting to look closer and closer and closer to that than should ever be the case. So to get to get a sense of how the how Bashar al-Assad and others in his regime were reacting to all of this stuff, were reacting to these increasingly large protests all over the country, I'd like to turn now to a quote from Sam Daguerre's book, Assad or We Burn the Country. Quote, before his mood was soured by the takeover of Hama's Asi Square by protesters, Bashar al-Assad had been in good spirits. 
He had resumed his tennis routine and was sleeping well at night and spending more time with his wife and children. He thought his tanks and soldiers had squelched the uprising. And he was also emboldened by assurances he received from his two most important allies, Iran and its proxy, the Lebanese militia Hezbollah. They were going to defend him, no matter what. They just needed him to remain strong and steadfast. Now, Samdegir quotes Hezbollah's leader Hassan Nasrallah, quote, Imagine what would happen if millions of Arabs and Muslims gather at the border with occupied Palestine at the same time, and we want to cross the fence. What would Israel do? What would Obama do? Now back to the text. In addition to exploiting the highly charged issue of Israel's security and its very existence, Bashar and his allies could also count upon emerging discord among regional and world powers over how to deal with the cataclysm called the Arab Spring. The United States and its allies, the same countries that had embraced Bashar starting in 2007, and had held out hope he could stop kill, stop the killing and institute real change a few months into the uprising in 2011, were now adopting a more confrontational and threatening posture to his regime. Britain, France, and the United States believed that only pressure could restrain Bashar's devastating force against protesting communities. They tried to gather support for a UN Security Re Council resolution against, against the Syrian regime, but Russia a Security Council member and traditional ally of Syria, signaled that it would veto the resolution. The Chinese, who were also averse to Western powers interfering in what they saw as, as the internal affairs of sovereign states, were also likely to side with the Russians. Moscow is already feeling betrayed on Libya. A UN resolution passed earlier in the year in relation to Libya was used by Western powers as a cover for massive military support for armed opposition groups seeking to topple Gaddafi, something outside the mandate to protect civilians, according to Russia. Bashar also found solace in the many fissures among regional powers. At the start of the Arab Spring, ultra-conservative and politically cautious Saudi Arabia watched the revolts with alarm, while the Al Jazeera news channel owned by its neighbor Qatar played a decisive role in mobilizing the masses. The Saudis sheltered Tunisia's strongman, Zain al-Abidin ben Ali, and his wife when they fled their country in the face of street protests, and they looked on in horror as another long-time long protege, Hosni Mubarak, was cast aside in Egypt, even as Qatar keenly sought to shape the aftermath in both countries by supporting the Muslim Brotherhood, a pan-Islamic movement. Qatar's emir, Hamad bin Khalifa al-Thani, told Western leaders that these were enlightened Islamists who believed in democracy and that, by and that giving them a stake in political life was the antidote to the kind of Al-Qaeda-like extremist thinking that obsessed the West. While Saudi monarchs blamed Bashar for killing their man Saad Hariri in Lebanon in 2005, Unquote. We will definitely come to that in a future episode. Back to the quote. Quote, and we're perfectly content with seeing the Assad family toppled and replaced by a friend by friendlier, more pliant leaders. The whole spirit of the Arab Spring was anathema to them. What if their own repressed subjects took to the streets and demanded the same freedoms and rights? That's what people were singing for day and night across the border in Yemen. Saudi Arabia also fretted about its arch nemesis, Iran, 
claiming it to be behind events in nearby Bahrain, where protests led mainly by the long-oppressed Shia population besieged the country's Sunni royals. The Saudis sent troops to crush Bahrain's budding protests. Saudi Arabia was already anxious about Iran's expanding role in Iraq where Obama planned to withdraw U.S. troops and thereby leave the strategic and oil-rich country in Iran's clutches, as far as the Saudis were concerned. Israel had many of the same worries as Saudi Arabia, especially concerning Iran and the situation in Egypt. But by late spring 2011, Qatar's emir Hamad believed in his great power to influence and conceive outcomes in all countries touched by the Arab Spring, and Syria would be no exception. Qatar was hardly a beacon of democracy and human rights, a small sheikdom whose natural gas fortune is controlled by a ruling clan that has little tolerance for criticism and dissent at home. But the country's maverick emir saw in the Arab Spring a tremendous opportunity. Unquote. That was a quote from Assad or We Burn the Country by Sam Daguerre. So it's by mid-2011, Sometimes out of ambition, sometimes out of alarm, various players in the geopolitical game are starting to pay attention to what's going on in Syria. And in the case of some, like Iran or Qatar, there are major considerations over what they stand to gain or lose. There are even rumors starting to, go, starting to spread around at this time that Iranian soldiers and advisors from Hezbollah are assisting the, the local security forces in beating down the protesters. We have to consider the fact that Iran was faced with a very similar situation just a few years before 2011, in 2009, and ultimately the, the Iranian regime came out on top. So it would make sense why Assad would reach out to them for help, because at this point he's starting to get really, really desperate. With that, it makes sense why some Iranians operating in a covert capacity, maybe intelligence officers or members of the Quds Force, which is essentially the IRGC's covert action wing, it makes sense why they may have been deployed to Syria by the Iranian government. They probably would have had Hezbollah advisors with them because the great thing about people from Hezbollah is that they speak Arabic, whereas most of the Iranians don't. Hezbollah's close relationship with Iran means that they have a lot of personnel who speak both languages and can thus serve as translators between Iranian advisors and Syrian soldiers. At a time when the United States is largely preoccupied by assisting the fall of Gaddafi in Libya, the British and French governments are taking notice of what's happening in Syria, and they're telling the world, hey, this has got to stop. This is getting out of hand. Too many people are being killed. Too many people are being brutalized. This has got to stop. But when they tried to prepare a UN resolution on it, Russia put an end to that, and thus Assad was able to blow off calls to stop massacring protesters. What he couldn't ignore, though, were, were the increasingly critical and later on hostile messages he was getting from his longtime allies in the Turkish government. Because the Turks are going to be really, really impacted by any kind of large-scale conflict going on in Syria. They have a lot of interests in their southern neighbor. And because of how such chaos would threaten Turkish interests in Syria, they, along with Qatar, became some of the first countries to covertly intervene in the country on the opposition side. This all probably sounds chaotic, 
and hard to keep track of everything. Well, unfortunately, that is going to be the case for almost everything we talk about going forward in this podcast, because Syria is a very decentralized state, despite the fact that it has such a centralized government, or at least it did in 2011. So whether we're talking about local factors or international intervention, it's almost always going to be decentralized. To help explain this, I want to turn now to a quote from The Impossible Revolution by one of the real philosophers of the Syrian revolution, Yassin al-Hajj Saleh. Quote, The extremely decentralized nature of the Syrian revolution stemmed from nearly half a century of regime-enforced seclusion and isolation of Syrian society. It also occasioned the regime's forcible domination over all societal interaction. And so, a divide-and-conquer strategy was used by the Assadist oligarchy to confront the revolution from the start. Such strategies made protest activities in central squares obviously impossible because they would have permitted the gathering of Syrian society's diverse groups and perhaps would have allowed a degree of discussion, exchange of opinions, and general building of trust. Keeping this in mind, it becomes clear that the extreme forced fragmentation of the revolution's activities is an additional factor that has facilitated the spread of the nihilist synthesis of complete distrust and a propensity for violence. A third element must be added to this synthesis, one rooted in religiosity. Islam either accords an absolute status to the conflict or adds a positive value to the inescapable extreme struggle. Moreover, Islam legitimizes a violent response to violence by describing it as jihad, or holy struggle, and possible death as martyrdom. To be able to perform these roles, Islam itself has reformed itself in ways that respond to escalating desires for purity, for desperate but virtuous struggle, and for takfir, judging someone as being an infidel. Jihadist Salafism provides a version of Islam that perfectly meets all the requirements for those for making those tendencies concrete. In addition to the problems of distrust and fragmentation, or multiplication of revolutionary strongholds, there is also a fragmentation of vision. There is a continuous lack of clarity regarding both the path and fate of the nation, as well as the future of the nation. This state of affairs certainly reflects the general impasse that has been the Syrian situation for a long time, but it reflects the ineffectual role of cultural and political elites. Such criticism is quite justified given the poor performance of politicians and intellectuals and their constant, their constant quarrels and disputes. The present state of confusion and uncertainty about the future only substantiates a more action-oriented trend, one that scorns intellect, politics, programs, plans, politicians, and intellectuals, and that would settle for a mixture of subsistence intellect and pure action, both of, whom, both of which aim to alter reality through direct violence. This combination is exactly what Islamist hardliners possess— 
I speak of a subsistence intellect because the extremist's version of Islam looks like a heap of practical prescriptions with hardly any added intellectual value. As is well known, jihadist Islam is hostile even toward many aspects of Islamic cultural heritage, unquote. That was Yassin al-Hajj Saleh writing in his book, The Impossible Revolution, Making Sense of the Syrian Tragedy. That quote really highlights a lot of the trends that are going to seriously complicate matters for the opposition side. Because as he pointed out, extreme, the uh, extremists are oftentimes hostile even to people you would assume they support, like traditional conservative Muslims. If they don't if they're not extreme enough in their faith, they could get the takfir treatment and be labeled infidels as well. This is one reason, but not the only reason, why infighting among the armed opposition is, a, is going to become a regular occurrence. But once again, we're getting ahead of ourselves. For now, it is the Assad regime that is responsible, and still is responsible, for the bulk of killings committed in Syria. In 2011, it is the Assad regime that is far and away the, the worst actor in Syria, going as far as to torture children to death. take a moment to examine the soldiers who would mutiny against the regime and defect to the opposition side. These are people who had previously been ordered to shoot civilians in the street. A lot of these guys say whatever you will about them. A lot of them had moral qualms with doing that, especially if they happened to be from the area where they were deployed to. And even though evidence has emerged to suggest that Hussein Harmouche was being dishonest, when he portrayed himself as a high-ranking regime defector, even though that that has been probably discredited. The rumor that he had done so, the claim that this man, Hussein Harmouche, has set a new precedent by joining the opposition and calling for other soldiers to join the opposition, the claim that he did so, as well as the real-life occurrence of similar examples elsewhere in the country, this led to some people deciding to do it for real. The lie that Hussein Harmouche helped lead a mutiny against the regime in Jisr al-Shagur, that falsehood helped inspire some people to, to do similar things in real life. Let's turn now to a quote from one of these defecting soldiers, an officer named Abed, quoted in Dr. Wendy Perlman's book, We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled. Quote, We were four officers in the Syrian army with the credentials to prove it, we had freedom of movement in all of Syria and used it to help the demonstrators. We distributed humanitarian aid and food and medical supplies to areas that needed it. Our car did not get searched. When I'd arrive at a military site or checkpoint, I'd get out my ID. The soldier would salute. My respect, sir. Please proceed. As an officer in the Syrian army, you're above everyone. Stand in line? Forget it. That's how the regime worked in Syria. We understood this. The revolution started in March. Civilians and rebels started using arms by August. I told them from the beginning that this regime would not go except with force of arms. Like it or not, you have to use weapons. Every day there were peaceful demonstrations and five or six or ten people would die. We weren't going to get anywhere. And if you wanted to wait for world public opinion to support us, forget it. 
we needed to forget that myth, unquote. That was Abed, a defected officer from Palmyra, interviewed by Dr. Wendy Perlman in her book, We Crossed a Bridge and It Trembled. What we can see from this and the other quotes is that the regime by mid-2011 is having a hard time trusting its own soldiers. And because of that, we see them lean in more and more and more into sectarianism, in the f- into the fear that existed between Syria's various religious communities. For an example of what this looked like, we turn now to another quote from A Woman in the Crossfire by Samar Yazbek. Quote, A man in his 40s approaches me at the checkpoint connecting the city of Banyas to the mountain villages where the international road splits off. After a while, he tells me he is a police officer, adding that people were scared of the armed fighters. He makes no comment when I tell him, I doubt that the men of Albaida have any weapons. Then I add, wasn't arresting and killing them a barbaric thing to do? He doesn't reply, just motions for me to move along. The car is close, so he opens the door and says with the utmost propriety, I beg you, ma'am, please get out of here. He turns his back. Anger is obviously written all over his face. I can tell because I am angry too. A man sitting not too far away tells us that the officer's brother had been killed in the bus the army targeted two days before, in which a group of officers and soldiers were also killed. She then asks him, quote, But some people say that the ones who killed the army and the people and some of the security forces were operating like gangs. Do people in Banyas know who they are? Yes, he says. But who's saying that? I tell him that I read it somewhere. He is tall, thin, has a scruffy beard, and adds, Everybody knows who they are, but everyone is afraid of them. Of what? I asked. He says that the Alawis are afraid of the rumors being spread amongst them. My house is in an Alawi neighborhood, and I'm afraid to go home. There are some neighborhoods where Alawis and Sunnis live together, but things could explode at any moment. Someone is terrorizing people and stirring up sectarian strife, I say. Yes, there are some people who are frightening people. The problem is that they've succeeded. He mentions a few family names of people who've been taking up arms and frightening people who work for one of the president's relatives. Unquote. That was Samar Yazbek writing in her memoir, A Woman in the Crossfire, Diaries of the Syrian Revolution. So Bashar al-Assad had relatives who were reaching out to their connections in various communities across Syria to spread fear, to spread terror, to whip people up into a violent frenzy to defend the regime. That is how desperate they became. June 14th and June 16th, 2011, have some interesting developments, both internationally and and domestically speaking, for Syria. On June 14th, for the first time, members of the Arab League begin to criticize the brutality committed by the Syrian government. Now, keep in mind, the Arab League is a supranational organization, which is made up of a bunch of countries that, for the most part, don't have the best human rights records. So, when it comes to repressing dissidents, these governments aren't exactly squeamish. But even they are looking at what's going on in Syria, and they're starting to say, hey, Bashar, bro, this is getting excessive. You might want to calm down a little bit. It's nothing official. It's not like a. It's not like they got together and had a vote and then sanctioned Syria or anything like that. That will come later, but we're not at that point yet. Right now, member states in the Arab League are are just issuing mild criticism 
of Bashar al-Assad for having arrested, tortured, and killed so many protesters over the last three or four months. On June 16th, we see more and more sieges taking place throughout northern Syria and also the beginning of a siege on the eastern border town of Al-Bukamal or Abu-Kamal depending on who you ask. Interestingly, it's on this day that we also see what I can only describe as a cynical PR stunt take place. We've talked a little bit about Rami Makhlouf, Bashar al-Assad's cousin, who happens to be the richest man in Syria because of how many businesses he owns. And given the nature of the regime, you can bet that a lot of this was not above board. This isn't some... Rami Makhlouf isn't some guy who, like, worked for his wealth. He's a guy who took wealth by exploiting his connections. For that, he is a very unpopular figure among the Syrian opposition. He's kind of emblematic of the sort of economic inequality that motivated a lot of the protesters. On June 16th, 2011, he stepped down from one of his most important companies, Syriatel, the AT&T of Syria. He steps down. He publicly quits his job as the owner of that company, and and he tries to... He does this routine where he's telling people that he's done with business, he's stepping out, he's retiring. That wasn't entirely true. What the regime was trying to do, once again, was some window dressing reform where it's like, hey, hey, we got rid of Rami. See, you you said you wanted Rami Makhlouf gone. He's gone. Well, too little, too late, Bashar. You should have done that before you massacred one or two thousand protesters. Nowadays, it's going to take more than that to satisfy the opposition. And this was made very clear the next day, June 17th, 2011, the Friday of Salah al-Ali. The day was named after a high-profile Alawi who participated in the Great Syrian Revolt against French colonists. It was an attempt by the opposition to try to reach out to Syria's Alawi community and try to try to counteract the sectarian propaganda going around, claiming that they were a Salafi extremist movement who wanted to exterminate anyone who wasn't a Sunni Muslim. While they might not have been successful in getting the Alawi community as a whole to turn their back on the regime, they did succeed in drawing out some of the largest protests to take place thus far. I mean, if if you've been listening to our previous episodes, you probably know by now that Fridays always have the largest protests because Friday is the holy day in Islam. So Fridays are always a big deal, especially when you have protest movements and revolutions going on in this corner of the world. For more on how the Alawi community was reacting to the Syrian revolution, I want to turn now to a quote from The Syrian Revolution written by Dr. Yasser Munif. Quote, In 2011, Assad wanted minorities to believe that the current revolt was a repeat of sectarian violence that took place in past decades. He used a politics of fear to mobilize the Alawi community and prevent the formation of alliances between Syrians of different religious backgrounds. As a result, many Alawi families living in Aleppo panicked in 2011 and left the city, unquote. That was from The Syrian Revolution Between the Politics of Life and the Geopolitics of Death, written by Dr. Yasser Munif. I should also mention that the protests taking place on Friday, June 17th, the Friday of Salah al-Ali, some of the, some protests are even taking place in besieged cities like Marat al-Numan. Even while they're under siege, being shot at, and sometimes shelled, people are still turning out to protest Bashar al-Assad. 
So you might be wondering, why is it that so many members of Syria's religious minorities either initially distrusted the opposition or later on at least came to distrust them? Why is that? First of all, it has to do with Syria's history. The Alawis and the Druze and others had long histories of being oppressed by Sunni Muslim elites. The other part comes down to propaganda by the regime, as we've been saying throughout this episode. Lastly, though, there's the element of the unknown. People really weren't sure what Syria would look like if Bashar al-Assad and his regime went away. A lot of people simply could not imagine it after 40 years of Syria being that way. That's two generations. So you've had two generations of people. The only people who can remember what life was like in Syria before Hafez al-Assad took over, they're old now. And ultimately, when they looked around at other countries that had recently experienced successful revolutions, like Egypt and Tunisia in 2011, all of that historical tension combined with the uncertainty of what comes next, especially when in both Egypt and Tunisia at the time, it appeared to some that the Muslim Brotherhood and other Islamists were the most well-organized, politically speaking, and were poised to, if not take over the country, at least gain a significant foothold within the government. Now, it didn't exactly play out that way, but that was the perception people had at the time in 2011. For more on this, I want to turn to an excerpt from Alia Malek's memoir, The Home That Was Our Country, where she describes visiting Egypt and what she saw there. This quote also really says a lot about what it's like when somebody from Syria leaves the country and finds themselves in a, frankly, more normal environment. Post-revolution Egypt was messy and imperfect. New sectarian tensions between Christians and Muslims erupted, and protests at the Israeli embassy turned violent. The military council ruling Egypt in the interim between Mubarak and elections enacted several undemocratic measures, such as arresting activists and discouraging demonstrations. The Muslim Brotherhood, which had skipped the large protest in Tahrir Square, was quickly proving itself to be power-hungry and unwilling to really change Egypt as much as put itself in power. But despite all those realities, Egyptians were politicized, and seemingly headed into the future, they also, for the most part, had been untouched by the kind of violence already claiming lives in Syria. Violence that would consume it whole and eventually damage the collective mental health of its people. One of my last nights before heading back to Damascus, I had dinner with a few Egyptians who were like me. Some of them had graduate degrees from top American universities. They were all members of their country's intellectual class, Over dinner in Zamalek, we had spoken generally about everything that had been happening in the region, and specifically in Egypt. When the conversation turned to Syria in detail, I dropped my voice, lest anyone hear what I had to say about the regime. I did it without even thinking. Suddenly, one of them, a member of Egypt's foreign service, started to laugh. Why are you whispering? We're not in Syria. You can speak. He was correct. But Syrians had long ago internalized the Makabarat, even in diaspora. It was a fear rooted in the belief that they had unlimited reach. If I had thought I was free of that kind of fear, 
it was clear that I wasn't. What I used to regularly call not normal had become secondhand to me. In Egypt, I was reminded that there was nothing normal about the situation in Syria. I was also inspired that the people could triumph. Unquote. That was Alia Malek writing in her memoir, The Home That Was Our Country. That phenomenon that she describes at the very end, that's something I've noticed a lot when I interview Syrians for this podcast. It's almost always the case that we cannot share their full name, usually because of fear of retaliation for their friends and family still living in Syria. But for some Syrians who live in the diaspora, they deal, they live with the daily fear that they're still being watched. They live with the fear that something they say on social media might result in the Syrian government sending people either from the embassy or elsewhere to surveil them, to watch them, and possibly even break into their home and do stuff to them. And I, I know that might sound hyperbolic, but we always have to look at the example of Hadil Kuki in 2012 and her horrific home invasion that she suffered at the hands of Syrian intelligence officers. Keep in mind, that happened to her in Cairo, in Egypt, the same country that Alia Malik was describing. So even in the places that have, at first glance appeared to be safe havens, not even those places feel safe. Not even Those places aren't even always safe. So if you're just a random Syrian refugee, and all your life you've lived in fear of the Assad regime, and you start hearing stories about how people like you are still being pursued, even if you go to somewhere like Egypt or Turkey or Germany. This is a daily fear that, that Syrians all over the world currently live with and have lived with for even longer than the past decade. I mean, it's probably intensified given the fact that millions of them have had to flee the country. But for decades, when Syrians have left Syria, they have, they have oftentimes still not felt free from the regime's grasp from the macabre's watching eyes. There's a saying in Syria, one that you often hear variations of it in similar totalitarian countries. The walls have ears. It's also important to note, though, that there were some very big differences between Syria and the other countries where revolutions had either taken place in 2011 or were ongoing at the time. It was a very, it was a very common mistake in 2011 for people to look at what was going on in Egypt or Tunisia or Yemen or Bahrain or, in an extreme case, Libya, and assume that Syria would look like any of those countries, and it ended up being none of the above. For more on this, we turn again to Civil War in Syria by Boxo et al. Quote, The regime's response to peaceful protest was to refuse all dialogue, try to divide the movement with selective economic concessions, and militarize the repression to radicalize the opposition, as had been done in the 1980s. However, the demonstrations grew to the point where they overwhelmed the security apparatus, and the army failed to reassert control. Then the protesters took up arms as the crisis escalated. The situation in Syria differed profoundly from those in Tunisia and Egypt, whose armies played a decisive role in the downfall of their regimes. Unlike in these countries, where Western assistance enabled a degree of independence from the political leadership, Bashar al-Assad controlled where Iranian and Russian support made its impact. 
in the spring of 2011, in a time when the regime faced increasing pressure by some of its allies, including Qatar and Hezbollah, they were unable to significantly influence policy because of their tenuous contacts inside the regime. Moreover, instead of undermining the regime, the rising violence served as a served in the short run to reinforce the cohesion of the security institutions, intelligence, army, and police. The Syrian regime had built residential communities for officers and their families, which provided them with better living conditions, but also made it easier to monitor their families and thus served to cement their loyalty. The numerous war crimes committed by the security Oregon's cadres probably further tied them to the regime since they risked indictment in any political transition that did not include Bashar al-Assad. Finally, by turning the conflict into a sectarian one, the regime took the minorities hostage. Alois played an increasingly central role in it as they were prevented from joining the opposition after the first few months of repression, a situation that the regime knew how to exploit. Unquote. That was from Civil War in Syria, written by Adam Boxo, Giles Doran-Saro, and Arthur Kuzne. The regime continues its violent response to the revolution, especially in places like Jisr al-Shagur and Marat al-Numan in Idlib. And ironically, this has the effect of, of spontaneously mo- motivating people to go out, the, go out into the streets and protest more. <laughs> It has, it, it's just a, it's just a complete and utter backfire. You, you got your typical Friday protests that are larger than all the others. And the regime then, in the course of attacking towns here and there, kicking, kicking down doors, shelling them, etc., etc., in the course of doing all that over the weekend, that leads to more protests during the week across the country. We've mentioned Abu Kamal or Al Bukamal, that small town on the border with Iraq. Abu Kamal and Derazor in the east, those eastern cities, they're rising up. The city of Madaya, close to Damascus, has protests going on. Several neighborhoods in Damascus itself are seeing protests. And even the traditional Assad sanctuary, Latakia, it's got protests now against the regime. Hama, the place, the site of the Hama massacre in 1982, they're protesting against the regime. And lastly, you've got Homs. Homs at this point has seen some of the largest protests, as well as some of the largest numbers of people killed since the protesting started. For more on this, I want to turn again to Syria, the fall of the House of Assad by Dr. David Lesh. Quote, The largely Sunni city of Homs, an industrial hub, the third largest city in Syria, and the original home of Bashar al-Assad's wife, Asma, descended into vicious daily warfare, between protesters and government forces, and soon became the epicenter of the uprising. The violence escalated throughout the country, the different sides hardened their positions, and any serious thoughts of national dialogue receded. Unquote. That was Dr. David Lesh writing in his book, Syria, the Fall of the House of Assad. So we can see that the, that the regime's schizophrenic approach of appeasement here and brutality there, plus more brutality if that doesn't work, which, spoiler alert, it didn't work, so br- more brutality kept happening over and over again. It didn't work. The protests are just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So some people in the regime decide, okay, we got to take a new approach. We got to try something new. Well, actually, that would have been smarter than what they ended up doing instead. 
We mentioned the Syrian National Council in a previous episode. This was a attempt by opposition activists to form a sort of government in exile based in Istanbul. And now in late June of 2011, we are seeing them start to become more and more active. On June 19th, 2011, they held a press conference at the Turkish border where they called upon members of all communities as well as representatives from the security forces to join the Syrian revolution. Did it have that much of an impact in the long run? Not that much. But there is something very meaningful about Syrians who oppose the Assad regime gathering at the border in Turkey, publicly stating their intentions to replace Bashar al-Assad. It's a very powerful political statement. I think what they were ultimately trying to do was prevent the sort of fragmentation that ended up taking place. They wanted to create a centralized, top-down opposition movement rather than simply collapse the country into civil war. What they were trying to do was forestall the outbreak of violent nihilism. And this is a phenomenon that Yassin al-Hajj Saleh describes in his book, The Impossible Revolution. Quote, A nihilist complex within Syria was born out of the preceding months of struggle. The characteristics of such a complex would include extreme violence, strict religiosity, and the withdrawal of trust from the world. A confluence of these three elements could generate a nihilist Islamic movement similar to Al-Qaeda, and the chances of this happening increase in accordance with the long-term presence of conditions favorable to these elements, combined with the weakening of possible forms of social resistance to nihilism. The remarkable thing about the Syrian context, and the Arab context in general, is that nihilism reforms Islam as a base of struggle, with a constant tendency toward negating the world and ordinary life. The withdrawal of values from reality is characteristic of revolutions, all of which have exhibited a nihilist aspect. Consequently, we can refer to both revolutionary nihilism, which aims at a radical change of the present reality, and militant nihilism, which relies upon armed force to effect change. Over the past months, three ongoing processes have contributed to the emergence of a propensity toward nihilism. The first is the continuous, aggressive violence by the regime, the killing, the torture, random shelling, massacres, expulsions, burning of houses, rape, arbitrary executions, and burning of people. This includes intense feelings of shock and anger, particularly among Sunni Muslim communities, which feel targeted in a discriminatory way by the regime's most extreme violence, a violence that has been profoundly destructive to their basic living conditions throughout the country. Such feelings reinforce the conviction that such a violent regime cannot be overthrown without violence. As the revolution went on, and having faced continuous, horrifying violence, Syrian society has become a classic example of a brutalized society, one that has been abused for so long that it no longer trusts anyone, and in which the most abused groups of people are likely to meet violence with violence, murder with murder. Such reciprocity is not just fit, not just a fitting punishment for the aggressor, nor is it simply retributive. It is a welcome opportunity to regain honor and pride. The second process relates to the deeply divided and ineffectual Syrian political opposition, 
The problem does not lie in the multiplicity of views and positions, the divisiveness of having so many parties, or even with the overall weakness of the opposition spectrum and its consequent inability to realize change in the country. Rather, the problem lies specifically in the unnecessary, unjustifiable, and persistent infighting, which is most likely driven by attempts at self-promotion and the deeply mediocre standing of most opposition spokespersons, manifest in their lack of discipline and a clear shared vision. Consequently, the trust in the broader opposition has collapsed, resulting in a nearly indiscriminate public repudiation. The opposition has been found ineffective and worthless at best, disrespectful and despicable at worst. And this is when we are not considered the regime's double agents, an epithet not uncommon among some, some activists. Such judgments have gained credibility to the extent that local revolutionaries have become self-sufficient. The path of the Syrian revolution has seen local communities speaking publicly and taking over politics and public space to confront the regime. It is therefore not unusual for local revolutionaries to refer to this shift using expressions that condemn politics, calling it dirty and corrupt, and describing politicians as dishonest, power-hungry opportunists. The third process is the regional and international paralysis regarding the Syrian crisis. Some Arab countries and world powers initially made clear statements that blamed the Syrian regime for killing its people, statements that reassured Syrians that they were supported in their struggle and their sacrifices, and that the days of the Syrian regime were numbered. Their statements simply have not been borne out by action. The regime has concluded from such posturing that it has a free hand to decide the fate of Syrians. This has led to a widespread feeling among Syrians that they have been left to their own devices and that the world is indifferent to them, if not actively conspiring against them. Syrian collective memory is replete with episodes that justify such skepticism, especially toward the Western powers. Unquote. That was Yassine al-Hajj Saleh writing in his book, The Impossible Revolution. We kind of went ahead of ourselves a little bit reading that quote. It talked about a lot of things that happened later on. But what really stood out to me about that was that Yassine al-Hajj Saleh wrote that in 2012. So all of the problems that he mentioned with the Syrian opposition, especially the, let's just say it, the politicians who hang out in Turkey, those problems were already very apparent within a year it really speaks to how disappointing the SNC and similar entities based in Istanbul turned out to be, how disappointing uh, how, how disappointing they were to Syrians in Syria who were protesting against the regime. And this played perfectly into Assad's hands. We turn again to Civil War in Syria by Baxo et al. Quote, the regime's strategy of splitting the movement was prosecuted using three tactical approaches. First, it responded to the growing protests by, by either offering socioeconomic concessions or executing tactical retreats. In Dara, after negotiations with notables from the province, the 15 teenagers were released on March 20th, and three days later, the provincial governor resigned. Similarly, in early April 2011, with the protests intensifying in Homs after Hama, they were the largest in the country, Assad sacked the governor. Furthermore, in a move to isolate the, the various regions, the authorities tried to drown the political and moral demands of the protesters in the 
icy water of egotistical caution. However, this socioeconomic response was doomed to failure when the political advisor Buthena Shaban offered higher wages in March 2020. The following Friday in the cities, protesters were chanting, O Buthena, O Shaban, the people of Dara are not hungry. A revolutionary from Dara explained how the regime attempted to rally the city's affluent middle classes. Now they quote the protester, quote, After the first protests in March 2011, the regime made many promises to free those under arrest, to provide the city of Dara with more resources, and to help fight unemployment. Now back to the book. Similarly, in Azaz, within the Aleppo governorate, the regime attempted to regain the initiative by responding to old grievances. During the first demonstrations in Azaz, the regime's security services offered to solve old grievances. Now they quote a resident, quote, During the first demonstrations in Azaz, the regime's security forces offered to solve our, our water piping problems. These problems had existed for years, but suddenly they could be solved in a few days on condition that parents restrained their children. Now back to the book. In addition, measures were approved that were tailored to the Sunni majority. The niqab, or full veil, was authorized for teachers a year after it had been banned, a casino was closed, and a religious television channel, Al-Nur, was launched. Regime officials also met with tribal elites and powerful families around the country. That this strategy failed suggests that the regime lacked suitable intermediaries for these negotiations to succeed. The opposition figures in exile had no legitimacy among the protesters, while both the imams and leaders of the Grand Family were often looked upon as agents of the regime. This was especially the case in Damascus and Aleppo, but the situation was more complex in smaller cities such as Dara and Banias, where some of the most prominent religious figures were directly involved in the protests. Bashar al-Assad's second tactic was to portray the protests as the work of Sunni Arabs, the line taken by the official media was that the Sunnis orchestrated the first clashes in Latakia against their Alawi neighbors with the help of foreign commandos and financed by fundamentalists in Lebanon and Saudi Arabia, unquote. That was complete bullshit. Now back to the book, quote, The regime stigmatized the Sunni population as a breeding ground for Islamic terrorism. In 2011, the regime's rhetoric changed to propaganda that proclaimed the national unity of of the Syrians against radical Sunnis. The security services had begun to treat the population differently, singling out the Sunnis. In the same vein, the regime tried to win over the minority populations and to negotiate directly with movements whose ideology were explicitly sectarian. Now they quote a activist, quote, Very early on, the regime sought to isolate us. Openly, their strategy was to avoid alienating the minority communities. For example, to calm tension, the regime granted citizenship to hundreds of thousands of Kurds, Syrian Kurds who had lost their nationality in the 1962 census, something we had been requesting for decades. In the spring of 2011, the regime released Kurdish prisoners and concluded an agreement with the PKK. Furthermore, the regime recruited Alawi village militias while turning a blind eye to the black market economy there. For example, in northern Latakia province, the government, short of troops, supported the formation of local defensive militias in Alawi villages. However, the militias paid approximately $75 a month and poorly equipped, as a rule, were reluctant to fight and did not attack any Sunni villages. 
Damascus trained Druze militias for the same reason. In 2011, the regime began to quell protests in the Druze areas and to imprison the most committed protesters. However, to ensure the community's continued neutrality, it was careful to limit its force. The regime also proceeded to spread rumors of massacres by radical Islamists and offered employment to disaffected young Druze in self-defense militias trained by the security services. Again, these militias had an essentially defensive mission, especially since the Druze community was also affected by the crackdowns. As for the Christian populations, they were scattered and divided, unlike the Druze who were concentrated in one area. Christian militias were therefore set up according to the local context, regardless of the politics of the religious elites who frequently worked hand-in-glove with the regime. The regime exploited Christian fears of the jihadists and made local payments to create local defense militias. For example, in the mostly Melkite and Greek Orthodox Wadi al-Nasara, or Christian Valley, the regime recruited Christians into, into the militia of the National Defense Forces. Unquote. We are going to have a lot more to say about the NDF in future episodes. Now back to the book, quote, who were deployed across the country. However, the Syriac Military Council, created, created in Hasaka in late 2013, opposed the regime. Its main objective was still to protect the Christian population by combating the jihadist presence. The regime also encouraged the ideological radicalization of the opposition by having moderates murdered or arrested while it released radicals from prison. It also targeted moderate and or respected figures, even if they were not involved with the opposition. On October 7, 2011, Mashal Tamo, a Syrian Kurdish regime opponent who was also open to dialogue, was assassinated. In September 2020, the regime authorized the National Committee for Democratic Change to organize a conference in Damascus. The day of the meeting, the organization's president, Abdulaziz Al-Khair, was arrested and has never been seen again. By late March 2011, even as the arrests kept rising, radical Islamists with ties to the Iraqi insurgency were, were released from prison. These were to form the core of future armed Islamist groups that started emerging in early 2012. In the ensuing years, rumors flourished concerning links between the Syrian secret services and radical Islamists. The regime did indeed give rise to the idea that the regime fostered the Islamist movements in Syria to undermine peaceful protests. This as yet unverifiable hypothesis, however, is not needed to understand the regime's strategy. The release of prisoners, some of them veteran fighters from the Iraqi branch of al-Qaeda, radicalized the opposition, and thus let the regime position itself as a bulwark against the Islamist threat, unquote. That was Boxo et al. writing in Civil War in Syria. So that quote really describes a lot of, um, frankly, what the SNC did wrong and how the Assad regime was able to exploit that. On the other hand, though, I mean, how much, how much could the SNC have really done, given the fact that the regime was literally killing peaceful protesters, arresting them, while letting violent extremists out of prison to go off and do violent extremist stuff? Going back to June of 2011, it's also around this point in time that we see Assad about to give another speech to the nation. Oh God, another one. The last one went off so well, sparking protests across the country. Hey, maybe this time Assad learned from his past mistakes. 
maybe his hour-long address to the nation on June 20th, 2011 won't have the same effect as the last speech that went horribly wrong. Maybe this one won't be a complete flaming hot mess. Yeah, nah. Things started off looking good for the pro-Assad side. There were huge pro-regime rallies in places like Latakia and elsewhere. I mean, these were big. These were, you had lots of people going out into the streets chanting in favor of the regime. There were, there's a picture I've seen where, where people in Latakia, they, they're walking through this city square holding Syrian government flags, you know, the, just the regular flag of Syria. A few of them even have, pro, a few of them even have Palestinian flags in there. And they've also got this giant picture of Bashar al-Assad that they're holding. I mean, these are massive shows of support. Are they a majority of the population? I strongly doubt it. But when you gather them all together in one place, it's a big crowd. Kind of like how Donald Trump lost the popular vote in the United States, but when a whole bunch of his supporters gathered to storm the Capitol, he had an army with him. It's a little bit like that. So in the days and hours leading up to Bashar al-Assad's hour-long speech, things are looking great for the pro-Assad side. And one of their goals was to show off to the world that Bashar al-Assad still does have some supporters in Syria. They wanted to show the world that the country is not completely united in opposition to him. And in that sense, they pulled it off. Now, how much of this was based on genuine sentiment versus political leaders working for the regime, being told what to do, and then telling people they knew to be at a certain place at a certain time? Maybe there may or may not have been some cash incentives to some people to either protest or get other people to show up to protest. There's lots of rumors and allegations about that, but rather than waste time about all that stuff, I want to look at some of the things that these people said. Some of the statements made by supporters of the Assad regime are very revealing. So for more on this, we're going to turn back to The Impossible Revolution by Yassin El-Hajj Saleh. This Saleh describes a basically the pro-Assad version of the nihilism that he was talking about earlier in his book. Quote, Until recently, the modern history of Syria hadn't witnessed a slogan as Assad or no one, or its twin, Assad or we burn the country. Both versions rhyme in Arabic. It appeared not prior to, but in the context of practice from which it derived its power. It is a catchy slogan, shockingly honest, incredibly obscene, and strikingly extremist. It is a condensed expression of the theory and practice of the, of the Syrian regime. The spread of the rallying cry since 2011 has been intriguing. The theory of the Syrian regime assumes the, existen the existence of a territory named Assad's Syria, where the landlord, Assad, has free reign. He does not kill everyone, just enough people to keep everyone feeling unsafe. He does not jail everyone, just enough to haunt others with fear of detention. He does not torture everyone, just enough to frighten everyone else and keep them in check. He does not humiliate all Syrians, just enough, a bit more in this case, to induce the rest into keeping their heads down. He does not corrupt everyone, just enough to implicate so many to the extent that corruption is seen as inescapable. Assad is the name of the regime, 
The regime is the homeland of Assad supporters, particularly of the sectarian security nucleus whose bonds with the regime surpass mere loyalty to resemble full symbiosis. The predication of Syria with Assad in the phrase Assad-Syria serves as a cover for the sectarian security nucleus, granting it a national character, and in the process a rationale for expelling potential dissidents. In Assad-Syria, to oppose the regime is to be a traitor, because Assad-Syria is the one and only existing Syria. That a Syria unquestionably existed prior to Hafez al-Assad seizing power sheds light on the regime's propensity to mark the beginning of Syria's modern history by the so-called blessed corrective movement, and to omit everything that existed prior to that point, particularly pre-Bathist Syrian history. To acknowledge the existence of a pre-Bath and pre-Assad Syria perilously implies the potential for a post-Bath and post-Assad Syria. The solution is to deny the existence of Syria before Assad. That era was wild and obscure and does not deserve mention, Those were bad old days during which Syria was a primitive country racked by chaos. Thus, according to the regime's media outlets, Hafez al-Assad is the builder of modern Syria. The fundamentally nihilistic character of the slogan, Assad or no one, perfectly encapsulates the existential conflict between two Syrias. Here and now, the existential conflict as waged by the Assad regime is equivalent to a nihilistic conflict. It is a conflict in which an organism presumes that the opponent's life means its own death, such as its existence requires the elimination of the opponent. It is a conflict that rejects politics in favor of war, not just any war, but an absolute war that aims not only to change the behavior of an opponent or to win concessions, but to wipe it out entirely. The regime has never made room for politics or negotiations precisely because it has engaged in an existential war, i.e. a nihilistic war. The regime views the revolution as an enemy that must be exterminated. In principle, politics assumes compromises are possible. It assumes that Assad is not the one against whom no one could stand, but that he is one among many and the representative of one party among others. But the slogan clearly says that there is no match for Assad, and therefore it is impossible for anyone to be his equal. Consequently, because Assad has been exposed to the challenge that we see today, the country has to be burnt so that it becomes ungovernable by anyone else. Nothing in the practice of the regime is inconsistent with this nihilistic outlook. Unquote. That was Yassin al-Hajj Saleh writing in his book, The Impossible Revolution. So there's a couple of interesting takeaways from that. First, I couldn't help but be reminded of something when I read that quote. I have oftentimes seen people, particularly on social media, they'll make statements that start with this preface. I'm not pro-Assad, but, or I'm not pro-Assad, but I support the Syrian government you'll often hear people say those two different things as though they were two different things. But the fact is, 
They're not, as Saleh and all the other writers we've quoted in this episode make very clear. This is a top-down totalitarian regime. The Syrian government does not do anything that Assad does not approve of. You really cannot separate the two. It would be like trying to say that I'm not I'm not pro-Stalin, I just support the Soviet Union. It, it would be like saying, I'm not pro-Nazi, I just support the German government during World War II. You see how that works? It's bullshit. Now, to be fair, some people who say stuff like that, they're not saying so disingenuously, they're saying so out of a, what I would describe as a very misguided conclusion. They're telling the truth, they're just, I don't know how to say this politely, they're just flat wrong. But hey, people are human, we're all flawed, we all get stuff wrong sometimes. Secondly, that those slogans, Assad or no one, or also Assad or we burn the country. Could you imagine people in any other country saying that about any other politician in the world, no matter how much they support them? Could you imagine, say, the capital insurrectionists chanting Trump or we burn the country? Could you imagine people in Russia saying Putin or we burn the country? Could you imagine people in China saying Xi or we burn the country? Burn the country. That's pretty much what happened to Syria over the following 10 years. The Assadists burned the country. That's why I've been making the fuel on the fire analogy since episode three or so. Assad or we burn the country. I don't think whoever came up with that slogan was very interested in compromising with the Syrian opposition. For more on this, we turn again to to Sam Daguerre's book, which is very conveniently titled Assad or we burn the country. This describes some of the behind the scenes conflict that took place between regime officials who wanted to who who supported the idea of making concessions versus those who wanted Bashar to do what his dad would have done and just massacre everybody. And it also shows which option Bashar chose. Everyone believed that they were being watched. Extreme caution and self-preservation became the absolute priority for Manaf Tlas and all top regime officials, notwithstanding their misgivings. People started having double personalities to protect themselves, said Manaf. It was hard to figure out the truth. You could not tell who was with you and who was out to entrap you. Bashar was leading the hardliners and wanted to decimate the protests, but he had to proceed cautiously, given the internal discord. He had to appear as if he was taking a middle-of-the-road approach and catering to both camps in his regime, the bloodthirsty hardliners and those favoring less violent solutions and accommodation. This was amply reflected in a carefully staged appearance at the University of Damascus. Bashar told students that the majority of protesters were people with legitimate demands, and he even spoke of the need to heal the wounds and reverse the injustices of what he called the dark period of the 1980s when his father crushed opponents and committed the Hama massacre. He spoke about reconciliation and dialogue. At the same time, Bashar al-Assad spoke of traitors, criminals, and Islamist extremists among the protesters whom he accused of allegedly shooting at protesters to foment strife. 
In a forewarning that also seemed like a veiled threat, Bashar mused about the number of alleged fugitive criminals wanted by the regime, which he put at 64,000, and then said, I was shocked by the number, a real army. Imagine the extent of the harm they could cause, even if just a few thousand decide to bear arms and become saboteurs. In another nod to hardliners, Bashar used what would become a characteristic medical-clinical analogy when he likened his opponents to multiplying germs. We can't completely eradicate them, the germs, but we can work on strengthening the immunity of our bodies, he said. Of course, nowhere in Bashar's speech was there any mention of the fact that he himself had just pardoned more than a thousand battle-hardened and radicalized prisoners as part of a broader amnesty. With the help of his macabre, many had previously gone to Iraq after the U.S.-led invasion to join the Sunni insurgent groups, including al-Qaeda's affiliate. Upon their return to Syria, many were rounded up and imprisoned so that Bashar could show the Obama administration that he was fighting terrorism. Fresh from prison, they joined protesters in Hama in the summer of 2011 and were among the first to advocate bearing arms in the name of protecting civilians from the regime. To Manaf, Bashar's actions were a deliberate effort to poison the protest movement and validate the early lies that fundamentalists and extremists were the driving force. Manaf also witnessed something more sinister. The macabre was making weapons, mainly assault rifles, available to elements of the protesters through infiltrators and agents. Leading this effort were people like Rafiq Shahada, who commanded the powerful Unit 293 of the Military Intelligence Directorate and was eager to outdo his, di his direct boss. The emergence of weapons among protesters meant the regime could claim that it faced an armed insurrection requiring military intervention. In tandem with this, Bashar hunted all articulate, moderate, and secular protest activists much in the same way Hafez al-Assad had, much in the same way his father Hafez had gone after the professionals and non-Islamist opponents first. Unquote. That was Sam Daguerre writing in his book, Assad or We Burn the Country. Several episodes ago, when Bashar gave his first high-profile speech to the nation, responding to the protests back in March, he basically made it clear that the regime would make no concessions at all, and that sparked widespread protests. It completely backfired. What did he just do? He just paid brief lip service to the legitimate demands of the protesters, and then also just said, oh, by the way, 64,000 of you guys are on a wanted list. What happened this time? More protests. Again. Immediately. Large protests are immediately sparked by this second incredibly tone-deaf speech. Assad's speech to, to the nation resulted in huge protests taking place in every place we have mentioned thus far, as well as other places we haven't mentioned yet. These are protests happening all over Syria. And it's not just a one-day thing either. They keep pe These people keep coming back day after day. Saying that 64,000 people were on a wanted list made an even larger number of people wonder whether or not they were on the list. And that made them much less willing 
to quit protesting. It just gave them all the more reason to not just want, but now they have, now they need to overthrow the regime. I mean, God, I mean, when it comes to Assad's speech on June 20th, 2011, I don't know what else to call it other than just a hot mess. And God, yeah, it just, it was just a boneheaded move to make to say that and rile people up. I mean, for God's sake, you can see at the very beginning when he's when he's talking about there being some legitimate demands among the protests, you can see that at least somebody suggested we got to like accommodate these people. The whole point of the speech really should have been to foster dialogue and calm things down. And he did the exact damn opposite. <sighs> It's hard to talk about the regime and the stuff that they do on this show without just getting pissed off. It really is. It's like one minute they're doing incredibly cruel things like torturing children. The next minute they're just doing completely stupid shit. And it's just a mix of the two that makes them a really uniquely vile entity, I feel. We should also take a moment to examine how all of this and all the other stuff that's been happening over the last three months, how how has this affected the people who have participated in the Syrian revolution. We're going to turn now to Samar Yazbek's memoir, A Woman in the Crossfire. In the book, the uh, the chapters don't really have titles. The chapters are the, the chapter titles. The the chapter titles are the uh, dates when certain things happened. So this is a segment titled May seventh, two thousand eleven. Quote: Today I sit down to write about yet another massacre. Tanks besiege Banias once again. They shell Al-Baida and Al-Kamsiya. Banias is a ghost town. The army and security shell the city on a sectarian basis, bombing only Sunni neighborhoods. I try to make a phone call, but the lines are disconnected. So is the internet. People are surrounded on all four sides in a square that is no larger than four kilometers. What's going on? Is the regime occupying the cities? Do they intend to kill their own people in broad daylight? Latakia is sliced in four. All communications between the cities are cut. We're in a state of war. That's right. We're living in a state of war. My blood boils. I've lost my nerve. Let me try to clear my head again. One siege is barely ended when another one begins. They start targeting women. Three women were killed in an Al Markov outside Banias. The internet at my home is shut down. It's going to be hard for me to get get out to an internet cafe because the because the security forces monitor them, arresting boys and girls at random. I find it's better to just stay home. What I am able to document on the Friday of Defiance is that a total of 30 people have been killed in all the Syrian cities, killed at demonstrations by the security forces' bullets. I try better to understand the course the army is taking in its joint operations with the security forces, especially since Friday afternoon when they started shooting people at precisely the same moment in every Syrian city. This policy is an obvious declaration of war. There is no longer any uncertainty. The regime has made up its mind to kill its own people without making any attempt to listen to what they have to say. The military and repression options are abundantly clear, 
And perhaps the worst possible scenario is becoming even clearer. The scenario I worried the country might fall into. A sectarian war in which people are killed indiscriminately. That would mean Syria drowning in a pool of its own blood. The endless telephone threats make me nervous. What more do they want from me? I keep silent. I have fled my house and am living in hiding. My relationship with my family has been severed even as I write in silence. Maybe they know that I'm actually moving moving around on the ground and among the people. Now I want to calm down, to try and focus on the details of what has happened, on compiling more testimonies from the people who assembled in various places on the Syrian streets, but even that seems too difficult. The obstacles people face in getting in touch with each other, the, se- the security surveillance of the phone lines, the shock, and the sadness that weigh upon the people. All these details are very difficult to deal with right now. I even canceled my appointment with a journalist I was supposed to meet after he had to flee his his house for fear of being arrested and so i have decided to spend the to spend two days calmly studying the syrian situation from the beginning of the protest movement right up to this very moment what had actually happened on the streets and why had the regime started right away with such repressive tactics How did the incident involving those young boys in Dara get started? What had Atef Najib done to them? Before closing this file, I'm going to try and call people in Banyas. The lines are still disconnected, but I managed somehow to get through to someone who lives near the sea. They tell me they don't know anything. I would guess they are afraid of the Mokabarat listening to any Syrian mobile phones, as well as their ordinary eavesdropping. We all we have all started keeping our cell phones more than 10 meters away from us because we believe the security forces are carrying out surveillance even when our devices aren't in use. What kind of siege is this? We breathe the security forces in the air. I write down the most important things that have happened since the beginning of the uprising. Two months in, and the protest movement is growing. It started in February in a small way. In March, it spread, and there were the events in Dara. The 25th of March was the Friday of Dignity, when the first person was killed in Damascus and many were killed in Dara. Then there was the president's first speech and his talk about a conspiracy against Syria. On the Friday of Steadfastness, 37 people were killed. The students in Damascus started to mobilize, and then the students of Aleppo. The Friday of Perseverance took place in the middle of April, and Good Friday saw the largest harvest of victims. Then there was the Friday of Defiance, and the organizers were punished. Thoughts I tried to put in order. 800 civilians killed by the security forces. A large number of army officers among the dead. The rhetorical posture of the protest movement in Syria is growing. There are so many details about pain and subjugation and death, about fear and the consecutive breaths of life, the life that is slowly expiring here before the eyes of the entire world. Unquote. That was Samar Yazbek writing in her memoir, A Woman in the Crossfire, Diaries of the Syrian Revolution. Ultimately, Assad's foolish speech on June 20th, 2011, had the effect of further alienating the Syrian opposition and his other critics from the regime. The multiple days of protests culminated in the following Friday, which, as we always say, the Friday Fridays have the largest protests. Now, this, this day in particular, June 24th, 2011, was called 
the Friday of lost legitimacy. Gone are the days of merely calling for reform and working within the system. Assad could have had that. He could have made some compromises, but nope. Too much has happened. Too many horrific incidents have taken place. And and now Assad has also given just one too many tone-deaf speeches full of veiled threats. Assad has almost totally alienated the Syrian opposition from his regime. And while this is going on, the pro-Assad loyalists are becoming more and more extreme. Yasser Munaf writes about this in his book, The Syrian Revolution. Quote, the regime's barbarism is shown to terrify the enemy and mislead their supporters. Overall, the combination of these techniques of state terror should be understood as part of genocidal politics. This process of reorganizing society in a way that makes genocide acceptable to a majority is essential. This process is gradual as the Allies progressively internalize the regime's narrative about the enemy. For many, it starts with a complicit silence, with which gradually becomes a vocal approbation. Throughout the process, the production of the enemy, namely as a foreign agent, a takfiri salafist, or a terrorist, is an important step toward imposing a politics of death that is acceptable to a large segment of the population." Unquote. That was Dr. Yasir Munaf writing in his book, The Syrian Revolution. This is not going to be the last time we hear the word genocide being used to describe how the regime will go on to treat the Syrian opposition. copy some of it onto a future episode. It might seem weird that we went over only a couple of weeks in this episode, but that's just how it worked out. We had to get through a lot of important context in this one. Once it was clear that terror and psychological warfare wasn't going to bring the Syrian revolution to an end, the regime fell back onto brute force. Rather than recognize that its atrocities were what provoked the protesters to go from calling for the regime to reform to demanding its overthrow, Assad and his underlings will instead double down on their campaign of crimes against humanity. Thank you for listening to What Happened to Syria, a podcast about the country, the people, and their impact on the wider world since 2011. This has been our 13th episode, Alien Nation. 
Follow us on Twitter at SyriaPod so you can stay up to date with future episodes. You can also email us at whathappentosyriapodcast at gmail.com. We encourage anyone to reach out to us if you think we got a detail wrong or if you have information relevant to the topics we discuss. If you are Syrian, part of the Syrian diaspora, or have otherwise been personally affected by events in Syria since 2011, please reach out to us. We'd love to have you on the show. If you like what you heard and want to support future episodes, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash what happened to Syria to support us for as little as $1 a month. You can access bonus episodes for just $3 a month and join our Discord server for $5. You can also get fan requested content and a shout out in each episode when you join as a VIP patron. Our bonus episodes include interviews with Syrians who tell incredible stories. In After the Barrel Bomb, Fadl al-Mahamid describes to us how his house was destroyed in 2014 by Assad regime bombing, how he almost died as a result of his injuries, and the challenges that his family experienced when they arrived in the United States as refugees. Half Arab, half Kurd, Volhalabi is an interview with a young man from Aleppo whose mixed heritage made life difficult for him even before his hometown was destroyed during the Syrian war's deadliest and most destructive battle. Shout out to our patrons on Patreon, Jaeger DePato and Evan Kennedy. Thank you to all of our listeners. I'm Sean Hastings, the creator and host of What Happened to Syria. <laughs>